This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Stephen Waldman. He's a journalist and author of the book Founding Faith. I spoke with him on February 21st, 2008. Download the MP3 of our produced show with Stephen Waldman at onbeing.org. Okay, I just got the thumbs up. So um, we can start talking. And I actually, I want to start the conversation, I don't think I did this with you when I interviewed you a few years ago, but this is really, I mean, I usually start um, with a little bit of background into your personal story, like whoever I'm talking to. And I mean, you and I have talked about this, but I'd really like to hear it again. So just a little bit of why, of the story of why you started BeliefNet, you know, and your the your spiritual background, what or what what brought you to want to um, cover this as a journalist or then turn your career towards this subject? Okay. So you can start any time. Okay. Yeah. And you know we edit, so it doesn't have to be word perfect. Just free okay. flow. It was really a combination of some personal, professional, and entrepreneurial things all happening at once. This was about 1998. And professionally, what was going on was I was national editor of U.S. News and World Report at the time of the Clinton impeachment. Hmm. And we were just spending an awful lot of time on topics that I felt weren't uh, actually of that much interest to most of our readers. Hmm and felt like just on a personal level there must be something better I could do with my life that would be a little bit more relevant. And religion was exhibit A. Mm. The the mainstream media really was not doing a very good job of covering religion, mostly covered it as controversy, which was not really the way most people experienced faith in their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, Then around the same time, I was just noticing that every time we put religion on the cover of the news magazines... I'd worked at Newsweek also, the sales would go up. And this was, in fact, religion was one of the most popular topics of all for news magazines, more than politics or international or education (laughs) or anything. And once I started to look around at the rest of the the market and the world, religion was the fastest growing book category, one of the fastest growing radio formats. Touched by an Angel was on there and the <laughs> right, right. show. Yeah. It was everywhere. And yet there was not um, a, a magazine, was the way I was originally looking at it because I was a print guy, uh, dedicated to uh, religious topics in an objective way. And then the final thing is that I'm in an interfaith marriage. I'm Jewish. My wife is uh, Presbyterian. And... We had young children and were just starting to try to figure out how on earth we were going to navigate this interesting path (laughs) of raising kids um, when you're a couple of different faiths. And you weren't alone in that either. And we were having trouble finding the information we needed. Yeah, yeah. So all those things kind of happened at the same time. And I wanted it to be a print magazine because I really didn't know about this internet thing. And um, But fortunately... Uh, every investor that I went to kind of patted me on the back and said, that's a swell idea. If if you ever uh, – fortunately, every potential investor I met with patted me on the back and said, well, that's a swell idea. Good luck with that. <laughs> um, 
But if you ever turn it into a website, give us a call. And mm. eventually, after hearing that about six times, I kind of reluctantly went back into the basement and rewrote the business plan uh, f- to make it a website. And within about a day, I realized, wow, this is a much better idea mm. because the, the Internet lends itself so well to spiritual discussion and the interactivity of it lends itself so well to religion. And, and then uh, we created Belief Night in 1999. 1999 is when you went up. And, okay, so that is now um, almost a decade, nine years. And yeah. I don't have your book in front of me. I have all my notes I've taken. Remind me what is the precise title? I have to look. You have to look yourself. <laughs> I know it's... No. <laughs> I, I always get the, the subheading. I mean, I'll say it a founding, lot in the show. Founding, founding faith, yeah, providence, right, founding politics, faith, right. Right. and the birth of religious freedom in America. Okay. So what is it about the work you've been doing or your personal perspective on events of the moment or in these last couple of years that led you to want to write a book on this subject right now? Uh, not a day would go by where I wouldn't get an email from some interest group or advocacy group on left or right claiming that the founding fathers agreed with them about something. <laughs> and it was, it was always it was amusing because I'd have a, a, a liberal group one day saying, the founding fathers uh, agree with our position on parent school. And the next day I would get an email from a, a conservative religious Christian group saying the founding fathers obviously agree with us on this. And I figured both of them couldn't be right, and most likely <laughs> that both were distorting the views of the Founding Fathers. So I, I got curious about that. And as I, uh, as I went deeper into it, what I came to realize is that the culture wars, the kind of hostile attacks, had so distorted our sense of history that we really didn't have the foggiest idea how we ended up with religious freedom in America. Mm-hmm. Given how profoundly important that is, I felt like it was a great time to dive into this topic and try to sort out what really happened without the um, the distortions of a, of a political agenda. Um, and you know, I mean, there are a number of books out there. In fact, there are an increasing number that that touch on the founding fathers in some way. Um, I think the book you've done is different. I mean, what do you what do you feel was your particular impulse? What did you need to drill down deeper into that that you felt like even the studies that we have hadn't hadn't illuminated for you to make sense of this context you just described? First, there have been. A, a number of books about the particular spiritual lives of the founding fathers, and and that's fascinating, yeah. absolutely fascinating, and I do go into that. But I, I went at it from with a very particular question in mind, which was, how did their personal spiritual lives affect their views on the separation of church and state or on religious liberty? I tried to tie the spiritual issues back to the question of why we have religious freedom in America. I also just came to believe that a lot of what we believe about why we have religious freedom in America is wrong <laughs> and that it's kind of an important thing for us to understand so we can treasure it and understand why we why uh, America is such a religiously pluralistic country. Mm-hmm. You know, I was recently at Princeton University 
and I spoke with some young undergraduates who, who were doing senior theses in the religion department, and one was doing her work on the established churches in the early American in early American history, and this had come as a complete shock to her. You know, this Princeton undergraduate, and I just actually think most of us either we don't learn it or we don't internalize it. That that is into the 1830s, there were there were established churches in the in the early American Republic, and that all the states were experimenting, as you point out with different kinds of relationships between church and state. And you also pointed out to me, and I wasn't—I didn't know that it was this stark, that all the original colonies except Rhode Island had official or semi-official religions. Right. Most people tend to think of, well, the Founding Fathers were aware of persecution in Europe, and mm-hmm. they wanted to avoid official religions in Europe. And that's partially true. But almost all of the colonies had official or semi-official religions. And in fact, you can look at the first 150 years of colonial history as one experiment after another of people trying to have state-supported religion. Uh, You know, in in New England, it was the congregational churches, the Puritans, and in the southern states, it was the Church of England. In Pennsylvania, it was Quakers. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that all of these experiments had in common is they all failed. And so you had it, – it is true, as, as many conservatives say, that America was uh, settled to be a Christian land. It really was. W- what they tend not to say is the second half of the sentence is that after 150 years of trying that approach, the founders then took a turn and rejected the approach of the, of the previous 150 years. The founders rejected the approach of the grandfathers. Hmm. and said that didn't work, and we have to try something different. I mean, you even say the first part of that of the American story, the first 150 years, is, is ugly. <laughs> well, it, it is, and, and you have to have the caveat that in ways that the history books don't reflect, faith was acting as a very powerful, positive force in individual uh, colonists' lives to get through some very difficult times. So... As a personal matter, faith was was positive and important. But in terms of the state relationship with religion, uh, there's really a lot that uh, is quite painful. Uh, for instance, the uh, treatment of Quakers in mm-hmm. early American history was not just uh, a case of harassment or persecution. It was illegal to be a Quaker. And Quakers were thrown in jail and, in fact, executed. There's, there's uh, you know, a case of a woman named Mary Dyer who yes. I feel like every school child ought to know the story of Mary Dyer. Did, she you, was did a, you discover this, this, this story of Mary Dyer when you were doing this research for the first time? I had never heard of her before. Mm-hmm. And this was in the I, Holy I Commonwealth know. of Massachusetts, right, where this took place. Yes, in Massachusetts. And she was... Um, uh, you know, a, a, a upstanding woman in the community, and she was a church-going person. And then she, uh, along with some other uh, people, like Ann Hutchinson, uh, started having Bible studies, uh, what we would now call Bible studies, in their homes, and uh, were offering up views that were different from the established church. She was criticized for that. Then she later became a Quaker, and Quakers viewed themselves as Christians, but believed that the the divine spark could be found with 
in and not just from biblical revelation. And uh, they banished her a few times. She kept coming back because she believed in in uh, the righteousness of her cause and in the truth of her beliefs. And they sentenced her to death uh, along with two other Quakers. They whipped her. They all went up, had uh, the ropes put around their necks. Her two colleagues were executed. At the last minute, she got a reprieve. The whole idea was for her to watch her friends be executed. Hmm. Uh, They Hmm. said, okay, you have another chance. Get out of here. She went away. She came back again. She was was sentenced to death again. Uh, As she marched out to the oak tree on the Boston Commons, uh, they had drummers playing so that she would not be able to speak out and say anything to the crowd. And there they executed her in the in the Boston Commons, um, and you know eventually uh, you know persecution like this became known and became uh, a source of shame in the colonies. And who was there they? Was another, they executed her. Would that be the government of Massachusetts or the church? Well, the, you the know, it's a good question church? because I'm sorry. The the at the time the government and the church was sort of the same thing. Yeah. Um, it was the church fathers and the government working together that uh, held the trial and sentenced her to death. Mm-hmm. There's a second bout of persecution that I think is also really significant uh, and has not had nearly enough attention, which is uh, there was a lot of per- persecution of Baptists uh, throughout the colonies that I think is, has been written about. What was really interesting was that one of the pockets where the persecution was most intense happened to be in a couple of northern Virginia counties at the time that James Madison uh, was a young man and living there. Mm. Uh, it actually was part of northern Virginia that, that g- gave us Jefferson, Madison, Washington, Henry, and George Mason. That's amazing. So the f- <laughs> yeah, uh, very fertile ground. Mm. Um, so the fact that there was this intense persecution of Baptists where they were being thrown in jail, whipped, dragged from town to town on carts, and then whipped again, um, you know, was was part of um, uh, the backdrop for what Madison was seeing. It was part of what came to. Uh, hold on one second. I actually just realized I may have conflated. Well, don't worry then. Dragged from town to town. I can't remember if that was the Quakers. <laughs> um, I'll just say it. More okay. Yeah. Terms. Yeah. Just say it in general terms. The there was tremendous persecution of Baptists in the Northern Virginia co- counties that uh, gave us James Madison and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. So for Madison, the question of religious liberty was not something he was reading about only in Locke or hearing about as a European phenomenon. Mm. He was literally seeing it in his local courthouse with Baptists who were being thrown in jail simply for preaching hmm. their own gospel. <laughs> now, um, it, it does seem like um, we have transposed, as you kind of described at the beginning, our our own questions and our divi- the divisions of our time onto our understanding of the founding fathers um and there seems to be there seem to be kind of two positions 
that either, you know, really they were all deists and not Christian at all. And the idea of, of, of their religiosity has been, has been inflated. And then on the other side, there are people who say that, that, you know, the founding fathers expected religion to be thoroughly enmeshed with government. And we, we moderns have betrayed that vision. Mm. But you found, you found a, a, a much more diverse and complicated picture, not only of the, of the history in general, but of these individuals in particular. And it seems to me that James Madison especially captured your imagination. Yes, it seems like nowadays there's kind of two scripts and you have to choose one or the other. One script says that the founders were all religious Christians and therefore they would oppose separation of church and state. Yeah. And the other, script, the other script says founders all wanted separation of church and state in part because they were secular or they were deists. This dichotomy would have seemed utterly baffling to the founders. For one thing, the founders who supported separation of church and state mostly did it because they wanted to promote religion, not discourage <laughs> religion. Right. It was the, the whole idea was that this was a strategy for encouraging the growth of religion by leaving it alone. And there were others who thought that the way to encourage religion was by having the state support it, but they both agreed that the goal was to encourage religion. Mm. And that's that's just not a viewpoint that's reflected in in the modern uh, debate. And I did find James Madison to be the most interesting one on this because he was really the one who came up with the the most holistic uh, vision uh, for religious liberty that combined uh, first what he was hearing from evangelical Christians. He uh, went to Baptist. Princeton, didn't he? Which at that time was an evangelical college. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot about Madison and evangelicals that is is amazing. First of all, we think of evangelicals now as being opposed to separation of church and state because a lot of the religious conservative leaders have taken that position in recent times. Uh, in Madison's era, it was the other way around. And in fact, we would not have religious liberty without <laughs> the 18th century evangelicals. Hi. The, they were Madison and Jefferson's foot soldiers in the drive for religious liberty. And often they were the philosophers who helped them think through the case for religious liberty. Right. So, and, and, no, and, yeah, and what was that? What was their stake in that philosophically and theologically? It seems to me it was, there was also a theological um, argument, um, an evangelical argument for separation of church and state. Some of the some of the evangelical support for separation of church and state was was obviously practical, which was that the evangelicals were being persecuted. They were in the front line to be persecuted without it, right? Yeah, and so they they had an obvious interest in in breaking up the authority of the established churches, which were preventing them from praying the way they wanted. Mm -hmm. But there was a theology to it as well. First of all, they always cited Jesus's invocation that his world was the kingdom of uh, heaven and that uh, it was Caesar's role to regulate uh, government and the civil society. That separation was part of it. But there was something even deeper than that, which is that the evangelicals believed in a personal relationship with God that didn't have to always go through intermediary institutions, didn't have to go through clergy or church. It was a small-D democratic 
approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they really bristled at institutions in general uh, trying to impose, uh, you know, regulate views. So that kind of individual liberty approach to religion obviously meshed perfectly with the revolutionary spirit that Jefferson and Madison and others were were arguing as it related to the crown, hmm. saying also the individual has the right to uh, to liberty. So tell me some of the things you learned about a figure like figures like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson that. That really surprised you, where, where you realized you'd had blinders on, 21st century blinders on. First, I had no idea how important and central the role of evangelical support for separation of church and state was. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that they were such crucial allies of Madison and Jefferson. You think of Madison and Jefferson as these Enlightenment figures, right. sort of rationalists, and they brokered this really interesting and important alliance with the evangelicals at that time. And uh, uh, my favorite example was that after uh, the Constitutional Convention, uh, there was the first election, the congressional election. And James Madison, having just helped father the Constitution, went back to Virginia to uh, run for Congress. Now, you'd think that the guy who just created Congress would have, you know, a reasonably <laughs> simple time of getting elected. But he had made an enemy of Patrick Henry, uh, who was the governor of Virginia. And the reason he had made an enemy of Patrick Henry was really important, was that a couple years earlier, Patrick Henry had supported an idea of having state-supported religion, having taxpayer dollars support uh, teachers and churches in Virginia. And Madison led the opposition to that, Madison won with the help of the evangelicals in the state. Hmm. So now a flash forward a few years, Madison is now going back to try to run for Congress and Patrick Henry really has it in for him. So Madison first wants to be a senator and Patrick Henry says no and he just blocks it. Then Madison says, well, I'll run for Congress from the districts that, you know, that, that support me. And Patrick Henry carves out this district that won't uh, that he thinks won't support uh, Madison. Sounds like politics wasn't any friendlier back then than it is. No, now. it wasn't. This was <laughs> tough. And 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 then make it worse. Patrick Henry recruits James Monroe, this who is a war hero from the Revolutionary uh, War, to run against Madison. So Madison has this really tough election to the House of Representatives. And it turns out that it's going it, to the pivotal um, factor in the race is whether or not Madison could win the evangelical votes in his district. So that's that's worth pausing on right there. That a key constituency in Madison's congressional district was evangelical Christians, and he had to go and court them. And the thing that they were most fearful of was that the Constitution. This is before the Bill of Rights, mm-hmm. did not adequately uh, guarantee religious freedom. And at that point, Madison actually didn't really agree. He thought it was okay the way it was. He, he was not an early supporter of the Bill of Rights, ironically. And, but they said, no, come on, you're, you're, we know you've been with us in the past, but this is really important to have uh, religious freedom. And, and Madison made what was probably the most important read my lips 
campaign pledge in American history. He said to the evangelical leaders in his district that if you elect me, the first thing I will do is put forward a Bill of Rights and it will have religious freedom as one of its core components. Uh, And they agreed and they got him elected and he kept his promise. And that's how we got the First Amendment in part. Yes. And I mean, when you say religious freedom, that is what became separation of church and state. Or that's the phrase that comes to our minds today. Well, religious freedom has two parts. Uh-huh. Um, and in, in recent years, they've been treated very separately. One part of religious freedom is free exercise. It's can you uh, worship the way you want to? The second part is in the, in the First Amendment what we call the Establishment Clause, which regulates the government role in religion. Now... One of the things you hear about a lot now, particularly from conservatives, is they say, well, the founders really had a very narrow goal, which was they didn't want to have an official state religion. And if you look at the language of the First Amendment, it is kind of confusing. What does it mean to Mm -hmm. say no uh, establishment of religion? Um, And what was interesting is that if you look back at what Madison meant by it at least – he actually thought that's, that even helping religion was bad for religion and that it constituted an establishment. So in his view, it was not just about having an official state religion. He thought helping religion would harm religion. Right, and that's the nuance, right? Because it's not that helping religion would be bad for government, would be bad government. It's that it would be bad for religion, which is a different right, distinction the- than the one we make now. Yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. and you it's often talked about now as like, well, if you don't have separation of church and state, it's going to hurt the political process. Yes. That was not Madison's primary concern. Madison uh feared that if you didn't have separation of church and state, it would warp and sap religion. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting reading Madison's letters in his uh in his later years and in retirement. And he's looking back on what the Constitution created, and he's arguing in letters that, you know, this approach we took to religious liberty worked. And the proof he offers of the fact that it worked was that they have better ministers now and more (laughs) prayer and more religious worship. He said the separation of church and state worked, and we can see it because religion is thriving. Now, Jefferson had a little bit of a different approach, yeah, and he was more concerned. Talk to me about what you learned about Jefferson, because I think Jefferson is the one people feel they probably know more about, well, that most of us feel we know more about, more than James Madison. Well, first I want to say that if, when it comes to this topic, any time anyone starts a sentence with, the Founding Fathers believed, yeah. you should immediately have a lot of skepticism. <laughs> Because one of the things I've learned is that there is no such thing as the Founding Fathers as Mm. a unitary block Mm. when it comes to these issues. They actually disagreed with each other. And they were kind of close to the action. You know, they were the ones who wrote the Constitution, and they still disagreed with each other about what it meant. (laughs) Right. So they wouldn't be surprised that we uh, uh, sometimes disagree about what it means. Yeah, and I sort of feel like it it made me feel like, you know, we should cut ourselves a little slack here Mm. because if, if... if the ones who wrote the Constitution didn't agree with each other about what it meant, 
then uh, we should cut ourselves a little slack. I mean, if, if our opponents are wrong, they're wrong at the margins. Uh, they're not evil. They're mistaken. Hmm. So uh, it's just a worthwhile you know, bit of perspective to have. Now, Jefferson <clears throat> one of the things that um, let's see what's let me, most let, me, let me let me ask you something about Thomas Jefferson. You mm-hmm. you write that understanding Thomas Jefferson's take on faith means understanding a fury, <laughs> his fury. What are, what are you talking about there? You know, when you read Jefferson's letters, not so much the public documents like the Declaration of Independence, but his personal letters, he seems absolutely furious, enraged at a few things. He's enraged at the church. He's enraged at everyone who he thinks distorted Jesus's message. Hmm. And I mean everyone, starting with Paul and the apostles who he thought very little of, and he thought Paul was corrupt, (laughs) he thought Calvin should be put in a straitjacket. Calvin was an atheist, he thought, right? Yes, and, uh-huh. and, you know, insane, and he thought the priests were charlatans, and basically that, you know, the history of the world was about a, a, a thousand years of corruptions of Jesus's words, and that that process began almost immediately. Hmm. Uh, and he was, he was very angry about it. And I think the, one of the things that is lost when we talk about Jefferson is we look at him as a deist and we think that it's a kind of a a calm, abstract approach. And it is true that he was very hostile to the the church of the time and to the literal interpretations of the Bible. But it's almost like he was like a, um, you know, a parent who's trying to find a kidnapped child. Hmm. He was on a quest to rescue Jesus from what he thought had happened uh, to Jesus. So, you know, famously, he actually um, embarked on a project which resulted in what is now called the Jefferson Bible. Yes. The Jefferson Bible, he started it actually while he was in the White House uh, and then uh, did it again in later years in 1819. And he literally sat there with four versions of the Bible— Greek, Latin, French, and English, went through with a knife or a scissors and cut out the parts that he liked most and <laughs> pasted it into mm-hmm. a fifth volume. He created his own Bible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he cut out miracles. He cut out most of what we would, the, the Christmas story, he cut out most of the <laughs> Easter story. Resurrection mm-hmm. is gone in Jesus's, uh, I'm sorry, in Jefferson's Bible, um, the 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 rock is placed in front of the tomb and it never moves. He, hmm. Jesus never rises. Hmm. Um, but it is not an anti-religious book. It's Jefferson's passion for Jesus and his need to rescue and resuscitate Jesus is really palpable. Now, part of this is that Jefferson himself was attacked repeatedly as being an infidel and an atheist and hostile to religion, and this obviously really wore on him. And I think he, in some ways, became identified very much with Jesus that way, hmm. as as both of them were men whose uh, were attacked 
uh, by the priestly class for their beliefs. Now, I learned from your writing that he actually kept his Bible project secret. I hadn't known that. That surprised me a little bit. Is that because, because he had been criticized so much already? Yeah, what few writings he had done on religion uh, were used against him in the 1800 election and in other political contexts. He had said uh, that um, it doesn't uh, pick his pocket or break his leg if someone believes in 20 gods or one god. Mm -hmm. And his opponents, John Adams and the Federalists, basically used that to argue that he was an atheist and that he was going to destroy religion in America, just like his buddies in France had. Hmm. And uh, he was attacked on this all the time. And, and he knew that if people came to know uh, his true views about the Bible, it would uh, really hurt him politically and that he would be the subject of tremendous attacks. And he's right. He was, um, uh, you know, in, in, in a way, uh, Jefferson the- theologically really was a heretic. And he wanted a country where people like him could uh, could be free to have the viewpoints they did. And it's sort of sad when you think about it that Jefferson believed that he was living in a land at that time where he actually couldn't be public about what he really believed. So, I mean, would you say that that's, you know, at the core of um, a way to understand Jefferson's contribution to that original debate, discussion, work in progress that separation of church and state became. Whereas James Madison wanted to protect religion, Thomas Jefferson felt that there needed to be more space in the public sphere. Jefferson, you know, clearly, uh, most historians focus on the influence of John Locke and Montesquieu and and European philosophers on Jefferson in creating the founding documents, and Mm -hmm. those are important influences. But I do believe that Jefferson's own personal spiritual journey uh, influenced his views as well because he wanted uh, a land where people like him could hold uh, controversial views about religion and be free to do so. Uh, He did have a strong belief that uh, the religious classes caused more harm than good uh, they did so theologically, and he also thought they did so politically, and that the religious classes, when they get involved in politics uh, or when they get involved in religion, end up squelching political discourse and um, doing mischief. So he did think that separation of church and state was important for the political process, right. uh, while Madison was more focused on separation of church and state being good for religion. I think um, this this interplay and in exchange between ideas of the Enlightenment, which influenced many of the founders, and also uh, vi- vi- uh, vital religious passions, mostly Christian passion and sometimes evangelical passion, in a in a larger context, even than that. Um, the these languages, the the capacity to hold ideas. Um, I'm not saying this very well. You know, the, the, in our in our culture wars, again, so the context in which we tend to um, to think and to even analyze these people, um, we think of faith and reason as being on two 
two sides of any issue, that they are always going to produce different arguments. But I think one right. thing that you point out when you tell the whole story in all its mess and richness, that the founders didn't see the languages of reason and faith as contradictory. They were working with both of them at the same time. Yes, that's very important. The, the, the founders, um, if you look at Jefferson in particular, who elevated reason above all other uh, functions, mm-hmm. uh, and we tend to think of that as meaning, well, then he was sort of a secularist. And he did elevate reason, but he believed that reason would lead you to believe in God, <laughs> that uh, it was the, the mi- as he said, the mind was the only oracle that heaven gave us, huh. and that if you look at nature and you look at the stars and you look at the plants, and he, Jefferson was a, a scientist, uh, that that gave him proof of, of God's existence. And in fact, a lot of the people who were uh, Enlightenment thinkers uh, were controversial and opposed by the church establishment because they did not take the Bible literally, but they were theists. They did believe in God, hmm. and they very often u- used their rational arguments to prove God. This was not about uh, promoting atheism or agnosticism. It was about of a different approach to God. And it was very much of a free market approach. Uh, Jefferson and Franklin uh, in particular believed that if you had a free market of ideas, that good religion would come to the top and Mm. bad religion would fall to the bottom. Mm. They believed that's how you got to religious truth. Mm. I want to ask you about... The notion of divine providence, which is a theme that runs through statements and speeches, including political speeches, through the Revolutionary War and the drafting of the Constitution, especially I find it in uh, your telling of George Washington and of things he said and the way he described that this that moment in American history of, of um, what happened here as being divinely ordained. Um, how do you think that still imprints us today? Or, I mean, as you read all of that, the, as you read the historical context, d- did you feel that that, that that echoes powerfully in our own sense of this country? And also, is there, a, is there any contradiction or uh, disjunction between the way we internalize that now and the way somebody like George Washington internalized it? Mm-hmm. Well, first thing I would say is that, you know, there was a lot of controversy about whether George Bush used too much religious rhetoric during his presidency. And all I can say is if you look back at George Washington's presidency, he <laughs> makes George Bush look like, a, you know, a secular humanist ACLU board <laughs> member. Okay. Um, you know, George Washington and, and the other founders, but particularly Washington, invoked uh, God's favor and providence repeatedly. He did it as head of the Continental Army and he did it as president. And he believed that God was watching over America and that a lot of the uh, unusual and unlikely victories in the Revolutionary War and in the history of the young country came about because God was intervening 
and helping. And it, he almost looked at it and said, like, what other possible explanation could there be? Right. We're completely outnumbered. We have the be- you know, we're going against the best army and navy in the world, and we're winning anyway. It has to be God's involvement. Um, there was one really big difference, though, in the way they talked about divine providence and the way it often is talked about now. Now, when we talk about God bless America, there is this sense that we are inherently worthy of God's support just by being Americans. There was a little bit of a different attitude then, which was they certainly felt that the experiment and the uh, adventure that Americans were embarking upon was, was noble and worthy of God's support. But they had a constant attention to the idea that they had better keep proving themselves to be worthy of God's support. And uh, mm-hmm. if, if, they were, um, if they were swearing, and if, if they, you know, if Washington became very concerned that the soldiers were so profane and cursing and drinking that it was going to alienate God mm-hmm. and that God would no longer support them uh, in, on the battlefield. And John Adams actually had a moment of deep despair where he thought, you know, we're just so corrupt and selfish that probably God's just going to let us lose <laughs> to teach us a lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we'll come back later after we've purged ourselves of these sins. So the early proclamations for prayer that the Continental Congress offered and President Washington offered always had two parts. One was uh, asking God for his support and praising God for his support. The other part was confession. It was confessing our sins uh, as colonists and pledging to improve ourselves in order to be worthy of God's support. Hmm. So divine providence wasn't endowed once for all time. Right. It divine could be, providence it could was be not, lost was not something we were promised, uh, you know, at the point of the Mayflower forevermore. Mm -hmm. It was something that we were granted but had to keep earning again and again and again and that our immoral behavior uh, could easily alienate God and remove his support. Mm. I have to say, as I was reading all of this language about divine providence running through the founders, thinking I... I came back in my memory to um, a sermon of Reinhold Niebuhr that we actually had. Uh, we had, we heard a bit of him preaching in a program we did on Niebuhr. And I, d- I just want to read it to you and just see what your reaction is. Um, he, because he spoke and preached often about how um, he, he wasn't putting down the Puritan fathers of New England. He wasn't dismissing them, but he felt that the doctrine of special providence was a real problem they had passed on to us there in, it, that we had inherited we hmm. 20th for 20th century Americans. And he said, these Puritan forefathers of ours were so sure that every rain and every drought was connected with the virtue and vice of their enterprise, that God always had his hand upon them to reward them for their goodness and to punish them for their evil. This is unfortunate. And it's particularly unfortunate when a religious community develops in the vast possibilities of America, where inevitably the proofs of God's favor will be greater than the proofs of God's wrath. This may be the reason why we are so self-righteous. This may be the reason why we still haven't come to terms in an ultimate religious sense with the problem of the special favors that we enjoy as a nation against the other nations of the world. What do you think about that? 
Well, it's, it's certainly true that even the founders during the Revolutionary War period were very conscious of, of uh, providence and its role in the war and in independence. And they did believe that God was supporting them or that at least if they behaved well enough, God would support them. And they did somewhat connect events with um, God's favor. Um, what you do see, though, is particularly as the leading founding fathers grew older, they, become, they became more and more humble about their own ability to divine uh, God's intentions and meaning. Hmm. And they believed in providence, but they also increasingly believed that they had no idea what God's actual plan was and that it was foolish to try to interpret it. The, um, as, as the founders aged, even though they had very different views from each other on religion, they actually started to converge and their personal spirituality started to look more and more alike. And they also started to talk more about how limited their eyesight was. Mm. I mean, it was a great metaphor because obviously they're aging mm. and their eyesight, I'm sure, is, is deteriorating. But uh, through the wisdom that they had gathered through the years, they started also to believe that they really didn't know what God's uh, intention or plan was. And so that the best you could do was love thy neighbor and hmm. behave well and lead a good life. And if you did that, it would work out. Uh, that it, It's sort of amazing after these brilliant men, incredibly learned men who spent really a lifetime thinking about faith and spirituality and writing about it and reading about it, when they get to the end of their lives, have boiled down their spiritual approach to... You know, essentially the elements that, that uh, you know, a seven-year-old is taught in Sunday school, hmm. that faith is about loving your neighbor and loving God. And if you do that, God will love you and you'll, you will uh, end up in, uh, in heaven and in paradise. <laughs> so that is um, kind of where they ended up. I thought you wrote a really um, wonderful line in your chapter where you go into that, the, the kind of spiritual evolution of the founders. You wrote, freedom of conscience means not only the freedom to believe, but also the freedom to change, not only the right to practice one's faith, but also the right to a spiritual journey. We tend to think of the founders because we now look at them as statues. Hmm as having had a fixed spiritual viewpoint. And that's not true. Every one of them changed. Uh, you know, Ben Franklin, when he was young, uh, at one point he was a deist. At one point he was a polytheist. And he had this uh, fascinating um, uh, view that there had to be a, a, a universal God, but he was so big that he couldn't possibly be interested in us. So he appointed a system of deputy gods uh, with each planet, each solar system having a god, and that's who we pray to. <laughs> By the end of his life, he was, you know, really more of a universalist. Um, they they all evolved, and they all uh, believed that part of religious liberty was about the ability to change, and part of what they they found irksome about the religious establishments of their day was the uniformity that they tried to impose 
and the restrictions on uh, kind of spiritual exploration that they tried to impose. So they were really very modern in being kind of spiritual seekers. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it may be that lots of other people at that time were as well, but this sense of spiritual exploration was both interesting but I think also important that it was part of how they thought about religious liberty. These were connected. They didn't just think of, oh, this is just for me. They thought that everyone should have the right and ability to go where their their spiritual quest takes them and that if you did have that, you would lead to a higher quality truth. It wasn't a kind of relativistic sense that, oh, well, everyone's got their, everyone's got their thing and, you know, try a little of this now and try a little of that later. It was that if you are free to follow your spiritual journey, you will arrive at a greater understanding of the divine and that in this free market of religious ideas, the truth will uh, rise to the top. Hmm. Uh, tell me what, ha- having dug your your eyes and your hands into this history of uh, faith and religion and the founders and how they grappled with this legacy that we have from them of separation of church and state. Um, what has most of, of all everything you've learned and been thinking about these past years writing the book, what's most changed your angle of vision as you watch the current presidential election? I think that I, like many other people, whenever they, whenever we would look at, <clears throat> I, like many other people, whenever I would look at one of these church-state dilemmas like prayer in school or Ten Commandments in the courthouse, would ask the question, is it constitutional? Would the founders have said it, this was constitutional? Mm-hmm. And what I've, what I've come away thinking is that Really, the founders kicked the can down the road on a lot of these constitutional issues. They, uh, it was a political document, and they created the First Amendment in a way that would appeal to a, a wide variety of different constituencies in order to get the votes. Which means it was full of compromise in the beginning. It was full of compromise, mm-hmm. and it very specifically uh, you know, created a separation of church and state at the federal national level. And justice specifically did not do that at the state level. In fact, part of the compromise that gave us the First Amendment was the idea that states that wanted to regulate religion, including having a state official religion or banning Catholics from voting or banning Jews from office holders, if they wanted to do that, that was fine. Hmm. That's what the Constitution said. It was okay to have religious discrimination of any kind at the state level. Hmm. And in exchange for that kind of looseness, uh, they got a a federal amendment that had strict separation of church and state on the national level. Um, The, so, uh, oh, uh, let me, one one other point. Yeah. That was then uh, amended continuously throughout the next 200 years, including most importantly the 14th Amendment, Uh, after the Civil War, which started to apply some of the Bill of Rights to the states. Would it, it, at the end of the day, what I ended up feeling was that a lot of these church-state issues 
are actually constitutional gray areas and that the question should not be, is this practice constitutional? It should be, is this practice wise? <laughs> so there are some things where I'll look at something like uh, prayer in school and I'll actually sort of, you know, I might side more with the conservative take on this than I used to and think, well, actually, you know, the founders really did leave a lot of wiggle room for stuff like this. So as a constitutional matter, I may be more inclined to agree with the conservatives. But then I would say, but it's not wise. Mm. And I go back to Madison's view, Mm. which is that whether it's constitutional or not, you're going to harm religion if you have government get involved in it. So I've ended up kind of splitting this in my brain and often changing the question from is it constitutional to is it wise? And increasingly, I look at things and say, well, that probably is constitutional, but we shouldn't do it anyway. I don't know if our political culture is constitutionally equipped, though. Um, I'm using that adjective in a different way to ask that question of debates that get heated. Is it wise? Well, and, and you know, the lawyers and constitutional scholars have pretty much uh, monopolized this discussion. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain kind of conversation-stopping quality to invoking the Founding Fathers. It's as if you can say, well, I know I'm right on this because the Founding Fathers agree with me. End of discussion. (laughs) And, you know, Jefferson was very pointed about saying he doesn't think people should rely so much on the Bible. And I would extend that a little bit and say I don't think we should rely so much on Jefferson. Hmm. You know, it's, it's not like if we just squint a little bit harder at these founding documents. If we squint a little bit more, we're going to come up with the answer. Hmm. There's some parts of this that were intentionally vague, and we have to look at the arguments that they made. And this is where I end up being more of a a Madisonian, Hmm. because I believe that Madison's view um, really looked at not only what was good for the political system, but also what was good for religion. And he had a very nuanced and I think insightful approach to this, which was that um, almost any time the state gets involved with religion, even if it is to help religion, it ends up hurting religion. And so he said, as he went on in life, there are going to be gray areas and the smartest thing we can do is that whenever there's a gray area, err on the side of separation. And I think going into this book, I had the opposite view. I would say there's all sorts of gray areas. Let's err on the side of allowing for you know, harmless mingling and more mm. uh, religion mm. in the public square. I really didn't see what the harm of that is. And Madison's view was that The best religion is religion that is freely arrived at, completely unfettered, unsupported by government, and blossoming completely on its own. And he even pointed to the history of early Christianity as his proof. He said the purest period of Christianity was before it got state support. And so that America should emulate the same thing. We will Mm. have a pure form of Christianity Mm. if it has no state support. It's interesting. Madison was not 
saying that we should have um, separation of church and state and will, as a result, we'll have this uh, pluralistic paradise. He thought that if you had separation of church and state, that Christianity would triumph throughout the land. Hmm. Because he happened to believe that Christianity was was the the greatest faith. But his bigger point was that uh, that left to its own devices— government aiding something will end up sapping religion of its strength. Well, and you know, I've heard um, many West Europeans, and especially people in Great Britain, will say, will look to the United States and say that, in fact, that that's right, that separation of church and state allowed, enabled religion to be, to remain vital in American culture, whereas in Great Britain you have a state church uh, just the way they did in Virginia in the beginning, the good Church of England. And they have, I don't know, 1.5% of the population goes to church on Sundays, Is are practicing religious people. Yeah, I think Madison, if he were alive today, would look at Europe and he'd say, that proves my point. Right. And- that, you know, the, the, the states that had, uh, the countries that had state support have less vibrant religion. But it seems America paradoxical, is, though, isn't it? It seems just kind of well, hard to wrap your mind around. It seems paradoxical through the lens that we look at the past <laughs> it seems it seems paradoxical if you look at history through a culture war lens mm. if you look at it through the eyes of the baptists or the evangelicals of that period it makes total sense mm. well of course religion will thrive if it is left to its own devices christianity is true why wouldn't it thrive if it's left to its own devices? Or as Ben Franklin said, I suspect that religion that needs government support is probably not a very good religion. So conversely, those mm-hmm. that if you had, you know, it made me think that when you listen to some uh, religious conservatives now about the need to have uh, government support of religion or more religion in the public square, I imagine the 18th century evangelicals, if they were in the same room as the 21st century evangelicals, saying to them, why do you have so little confidence in your own religion? <laughs> Christianity is magnificent and strong and true. And if you just give it room, it will triumph. Hmm. It, will, it will convince people. God's spirit will, will arrive. It doesn't need the help of tax dollars. Hmm. Why, why are you so scared that it's going to, um, to wither without the support of the state? And, and Christianity certainly has not withered in American culture, but because of the way the world has worked, the United States now has more Hindus than Unitarians and more Muslims, I believe, than, than Episcopalians. Um, right. And how do you think the founders would would see this? Would they would they welcome this? Would they also see this as proof that their that their experiment worked? Some founders would be thrilled, and others would be a little bit worried. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing you have to remember is that the a lot of the founders early on were very anti-Catholic, and a lot of the reason that they came or their forefathers came to America was to fight Catholicism. Yes. So the, they would probably be more freaked out by the fact that a quarter of our population is Catholic. And how many members else. of our Supreme Court? <laughs> right. The five members of the Supreme Court that right. are Catholic. That would probably 
uh, you know, worry John Adams, for instance, mm-hmm. who until pretty late in his life was writing really remarkably anti-Catholic things. On the other hand, uh, most of the founders, particularly Jefferson and Madison, believed that one of the best guarantors of liberty was diversity and that if the more different sects or approaches that you had, the less likely it was that anyone could dominate and impose their will or restrictions on everyone else. Hmm. So they would view diversity as a great safeguard for our religious liberty. Hmm. You know, another large global dynamic that this all brings to mind for me, it's a little bit... It's not what we've been talking about, but as I as I read your account of uh, not just certainly there was lots of anti-Catholic sentiment there has been in American history even into the 20th century, but in that first 150 years, as you described, there's the case of Mary Dyer. There were people hanged on the Boston Commons. There was there was persecution and violence, um, and it makes me think. That of conversations I've had with Muslims these past few years who see them experience themselves in their countries to be engaged in an internal crisis within their faith that may take some time being resolved um, and how little perspective we in the United States who where we talk about being out there to encourage and create and support democracy, but we don't seem to have much of, an his, of a memory of how how very difficult it, in fact, was, that it was a matter of 150 years, when and there was still real violence and religious persecution, sectarian violence, even in our experiment, which has ended up in a good place. Um, I don't know. Did you think about that when you were when you were looking at this history? Yeah, we got a lot wrong before we started to get things right. And it really was uh, as a result of many years of, of kind of botched experiments and horrible persecution that we collectively started to learn another way. Mm-hmm. And the founders deserve an enormous amount of credit because they did not continue with the history of their fathers and and grandfathers. They actually looked at history and decided to take a different course. It didn't have to be that way. So they had the wisdom to look at what had happened and chart a different course. But even at that point, it's not as if, you know, it, it went straight from um, uh, James Madison's pen right to the National Archives. You then had a political process for the passage of the First Amendment. And then you had, you know, almost 200 years of evolution past that where these notions of religious liberty grew and grew and grew. You should remember that up until 1962, we had state-written prayers in schools, not moments of reflection or moments of silence, but a prayer written by the state Uh, read in school up until 1962. Hmm. It was a long process of taking these these ideas and gradually seeing them permeate American culture. And I mean, even on a a more dramatic level, I mean, I look at uh, going back to that Princeton student I met a few weeks ago. It it, it was not as though uh, on July 5th, 1776, established churches ceased to be in in the United States, right? I mean, when was the last disestablishment? 1833? Something like that. In Massachusetts, yeah. right? I mean, that, and you, it, that's it was 50 an amazing, years. 
It was an amazing period, the period from 1776 to around 1833, Mm -hmm. when the nation was kind of throwing off the old way without quite knowing yet what the new way was. Uh, Even if you look at the early days of the Continental Congress, the declarations that they would put out were very Christian. It was all about praying in Jesus' name. Uh, They were very anti-Catholic. They attacked uh, the Quebec Act for giving religious tolerance for Catholics. And think about that. One of their complaints against the crown of England was that they had dared to give religious freedom to Catholics in Canada. They viewed that as a horrible thing. Hmm. But five days later, they flip-flopped and said, "Uh uh-oh, I guess we need these French Catholics as part of our alliance, and we probably we need France's support as well. Um, We'd better start being more tolerant of Catholics. And you see this convulsive process where, full of contradictions where, where they're shedding an old approach and just very gradually, haltingly taking on these new approaches. And it was a state-by-state battle. Virginia was you know, the most interesting state because you had a very clear, articulated view led by Patrick Henry that said, um, yes, we want religious liberty, but religion is so important that taxpayers ought to help support churches, and and, uh, and George Washington actually supported that view, hmm. uh, and Madison and Jefferson opposed it. And you had a big fight over that, and you had this in state after state after state, and several states didn't change until, you know, deep into, into the 1830s. Um, then you have the Civil War, because remember, <laughs> even, even past 1833, even though you no longer had establishments, formal establishments, you still had all sorts of religious discrimination in the states. Mm -hmm. And the First Amendment did not apply to the states. It was only after the Civil War with the 14th Amendment that you began a gradual process of applying the First Amendment to the states. Mm -hmm. So it really has taken all the way up until current day for the, the ideas of religious liberty that were hatched and articulated in the founding years to really uh, fully take root. Martin Marty, the great religious historian, he also, I think, like you, uh, really finds James Madison to be an inspiring figure, maybe more than Jefferson. And he he talks about how Jefferson spoke of the wall of separation, and that is language that actually not until the 1940s, but by the 1940s got enshrined in constitutional law. And we, we do tend to throw that phrase around the wall of separation. But but Marty says that Madison talked about the line between church and state and that he thinks that's a, a more helpful analogy and actually more the way it has worked and that the line, that this has always been a work in progress and that the line... Is, has constantly been shifting and continues to shift in our time. I wonder if you think about that, about how we are continually continuing in substantive ways to grapple with what separation of church means and should mean and must mean as we move forward. You know, what do you see? And I guess I'm asking you that from the perspective of your work with BeliefNet as much as anything else. Well, Madison, in one sense, was very similar to Jefferson. He was just as strong a supporter of separation of church and state. Actually, in his later years, 
he was probably even more extreme. He, he said, you know, when in doubt, err on the side of separation. But he also acknowledged that there were gray areas mm -hmm. and that we were going to be fighting and arguing over this for a long time. You know, his view was, well, when we have the gray area, it's best to err on the side of separation. But he acknowledged that there were certain aspects of this that were, um, were muddy. And he also knew that a lot of this, his generation had kicked on down the road to the next generation. So in that sense, he wouldn't be surprised that uh, we had we had, um, are arguing about this so much. I, I do sometimes look at these debates. I go back and read the debates over the First Amendment. And they're changing the words and they're changing it from establishment of religion to a national establishment of religion. And they're just, you know, they're fighting over these, these little words. And I, you want to, at some point, reach back in time and just kind of slap Madison in the face and say, gently, because he was a frail man, but <laughs> still, you want to you shake him and say, come on, this, don't you realize what trouble you're making for us? <laughs> Can't you be much clearer about this? <laughs> We're going to have 200 years of fights over this. Could you right. please be more clear? And, of course, the answer to that is that he was in a political process, and he wasn't just writing a document. Mm -hmm. He was counting votes. Yeah, just as we getting, are. Just as we are. Mm -hmm. It was a political process. And so he would probably say, yeah, I'd love to help you on that, but I don't have the votes for that. <laughs> this is what I have the votes for. And this is what we can get right now. So sorry, but this is going to be your responsibility to fight for and define religious freedom, not just mine. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, in the last eight years, I would say, or maybe in the last 20 years, after the rise of the moral majority and, and during the uh, the terms of, of Bush's presidency, there have been voices who worried usually liberal voices worrying that that the United States was heading towards a theocracy. Um, I don't think anybody's worrying aloud about that anymore. I mean, I think evangelical Christianity and our political process continue to evolve apace. I often think, that though, that religious pluralism is going to be, not just religious pluralism, ethnic pluralism is going to be the factor in our life in the, in the coming years that may push and stretch this work we have to do more than the electoral success of evangelical Christians um, did in the last few years. I don't know. What do you think? Well, one thing that makes me think of is we tend to think of now as being a pluralistic age, a diverse age, and back then as being more homogeneous because mm -hmm. everyone was, was Christian and to most extent Protestant. But when you look back at what was going on then in the Continental Congress, they viewed it as a very diverse time because there were all sorts of different denominations of Protestants. And the, the, the fights between Protestants were different denominations were really strong. And it was because they started to have Presbyterians and Methodists and Quakers and a smattering of Catholics that they started to change the way they viewed religious freedom and started to think we're going to have to come up with some approach here if we want to be a national government and a nation that deals with this this incredible diversity. So they would look at now, and it would be even a broader diversity, but the principle is actually the same thing. Mm -hmm. The principle is the same, that diversity is uh, uh, very helpful for religious freedom because it guarantees that no one is going to dominate, um, and it enables... Uh, a thriving of different faiths uh, to occur, 
because that freedom that you have to have leads to greater religious energy. Hmm. There was something else I wanted to say about this. What was the the question was about? Well, I just I wondered if you know if in fact religious pluralism in our society is not going to going to shape the the, the way we have to grapple with in the, this in the years to come more than the religious right, right ever did. Well, okay, I remember. What I Although to say. the religious right is what was on everybody's radar screen a few years ago when they were worrying about theocracy or too much religion in the public square. One thing that researching this book did for me is completely change the way I view the religious right and the evangelical approach to politics right now. As you know, it's a really interesting moment right now, and evangelicals are reconsidering what the proper role of of religion and politics is. And having their own internal discussion about that with different points of view. Right, having mm-hmm. their own internal discussion. Mm-hmm. I think one of the elements that they ought to consider as part of this discussion is their own history. And that if they look back at the voices of evangelicals of the past, Isaac Backus and John Leland and other important founding fathers. These are Baptist preachers who had tremendous influence on Jefferson and Madison and others. And you look back and you read what they say. If they were sitting around in the Christian Coalition boardroom uh, helping to decide what the, uh, what the agenda of the religious right would be, they would say, look, we agree with you about the utter importance of religion, and we agree with you about the the absolute uh, necessity of strong moral values, because if we don't have that, God is going to turn his back on us. Mm. But we believe that the best way to have a vibrant Christianity is having more separation of church and state. And interestingly, one of the reasons that Madison in later years gave for criticizing George Washington's speeches was he said, you know, George Washington put... um, too much religion in his speeches. And the problem with that is not that it's going to turn people against George Washington. It's that it's going to turn people against religion. And people are going to look at his invocations of God as being political. Because then it gets locked into partisan dynamics. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're an opponent of Washington and you're opposing what he said or opposing his speech, you start to become uh, annoyed or, or antagonistic to the religious rhetoric itself. And what we are seeing now is polling data that says that one of the effects of the dominance of religious conservatives in the last 20 years is that it soured a generation, not on politics, it soured them on Christianity. Hmm. That's the big issue that religious leaders have to grapple with right now. And you're really saying that James Madison here again would feel that he had been vindicated. That's what he saw what happened. Can you tell I'm a, uh, I've become a James <laughs> Madison man? You know, I yeah. feel like I, I just went to Disney World and we went to the Hall of Presidents, which I don't know if you remember that, but that's where you have the animatronic presidents. I do remember sort of, that, yes. You know, <laughs> shaking their feet. So there's this room before you go into the Hall of Presidents and they have the portraits of the great American presidents that are going to be kind of featured inside. And there you had the portraits of Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and James Monroe. 
they skipped Madison. I, I wanted to <laughs> find the you know the guy who you know ran this thing and say Madison deserves a robot too. That should ha- his animatronic robot should have a speaking part because I think that Madison. Uh, you know, obviously this is, <laughs> religious freedom is clearly a group effort, um, but that Madison, I really believe, is the one who brought it all together and created the the, the real wise philosophy that gave us this idea of religious freedom um, and or what I call the founding faith and that is specifically religious liberty geared toward promoting religion by leaving it alone. Hmm. That's really the key thing. And which also turned out to make for good government, I think you're saying. I mean, it was good for both I, I sides so. of the equation. <laughs> and okay, so so here's here's a question for you. What, what do you most wish... Um, the next president or understood that you've come to understand that you didn't learn in your great American education um, about this, this balancing act between religion and state. What do you wish he or she might grasp and maybe might, might help us all be wiser about? That's interesting. Um, I think for a second. Yeah. I, I the first thing I wish the next president would understand is that people's views on separation of church and state do not tell you much about their faith. Hmm. No way. Let me say that again. Well, that's good. Okay. Um, I would love it if the next president understood that someone's view on separation of church and state does not necessarily describe their personal faith. And what I mean by that is that we've come to think that if you support separation of church and state, you must be secular or that if you um, oppose separation of church and state, that means you're more religious. And from the founder's perspective, that was a very – odd notion that would be viewed as a complete non sequitur. Hmm. There are different ways to encourage religion. There's different ways of encouraging a deep faith. But the idea that the key determinant that is whether government is helping it is not the way the founders would approach it. Mm -hmm. It would have more to do with whether the faith is vibrant and true and dealing. In their case, they felt that vibrant faiths were the ones that dealt with morality and taught good behavior more than others. The other thing that I wish the next president would understand is that both sides in the culture wars have gotten parts of this right and parts of it wrong. None of us have uh, standing to claim that the, the opponents in the culture war are, are dumb and immoral and don't understand the founding fathers. Uh, because, in fact, the Founding Fathers disagreed with each other, and some of them would agree with the more conservative approach right now. Some of them would agree with the more liberal approach right now. And if the Founders themselves couldn't agree with each other on this, then we should all cut cut each other some slack and um, really come to understand that these are important issues, these are difficult issues, 
but that they are gray areas by design hmm. and that we should try to reason through them together without demonizing uh, the people on the other side of the table. Hmm. I guess I, I think I want to end by asking you about the story you tell at the very beginning of your book, which is the story of cheese, a gift <laughs> of cheese. Of yeah. Why did, you, why did you take that after all you did as the beginning of your story? Well, how could you resist a, a, such an eloquent cheese? I mean, <laughs> the, um, it's just an amazing scene. You, you, you have Thomas Jefferson, tall, magisterial, standing there in a black coat at the doorway of the, the new presidential mansion in Washington, D.C. It's New Year's Day, 1802. He's standing there looking out at this site. And what is the site? The site is these horses pulling a dray with this enormous cheese, 1,235 pounds of cheese <laughs> made by 900 cows. I mean, that's hard to, at that part, yes. I really have a hard time yep. getting around. 900 cows worked together to create this cheese for Thomas Jefferson. It was four feet in diameter and 17 inches high. And in addition to this being a big cheese, it is a really, truly eloquent cheese because on the side it says rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. <laughs> and then you think some more like who on earth gave Thomas Jefferson a cheese of this size? Why did they go to the trouble to get these poor cows to make this one cheese for Thomas Jefferson? And the interesting thing is that it was the evangelical Christians, John Leland, the Baptists, that made this cheese as a, as a gift for Thomas Jefferson. And the evangelicals gave this gift to Jefferson, not in spite of Jefferson's support of separation of church and state, but because of his separation of church and state views. Mm -hmm. They believed that he was one of their great heroes because Jefferson's approach to religious liberty, which really did uh, call for a, a, a strict separation— was going to be the approach that led evangelical Christians and Baptists to have the most freedom to worship as they saw fit, and that was going to lead to a religious flourishing in America. Let me just ask you one last question. I think we have time. I hope we do. We start a couple of minutes late. So I think some people would respond to that, and I think this was part of the impulse in the 1980s that led to the moral majority. Some people would say, but in our time, well, in the late 20th century, um, religion was removed so extremely from the public square. It was so compartmentalized, so sidelined. That, that that was no longer appropriate and that there was a need for a kind of counter-response and a different position on the part of very deeply religious people. What's, what's your response to that? You and well, on behalf I, of James Madison. <laughs> <laughs> um, most of the founding fathers would say that the moral majority is probably right about that, that it's perfectly fine to have more infusions of religious rhetoric and language and certainly invocations of God and an awareness of God's desires for America, that there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that was in the greatest tradition of early American history. Hmm. Uh, George Washington certainly believed that God's intervention and favor was a key part of the nation being born. 
and they probably would look at some of the um, the fights and thought, well, it's it's perfectly fine to have uh, have uh, God invoked in service of of America's goals and dreams. Um, I, I think the mistake in that is thinking that God would care that 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 um, that the most important thing for uh, religious vibrancy is whether or not some politician mentions God in his speech. Mm. I don't think there's harm in a politician mentioning God in his speech. I just don't really get the idea that God would care uh, or that it is really important to how uh, most Americans actually practice their faith and determine whether they are good Christians or good Jews or good Muslims. Um, so I end up with a position that I guess is a little bit idiosyncratic, which is that uh, a lot of this stuff ought to be allowed, but that we shouldn't be fighting about it so much and that we should be um, uh, really placing less importance on whether or not these uh, religion is invoked in the public square. And what should we be placing importance on? We should be placing importance on living a good life according to the dictates of our faith. Hmm. The founders would say that's the most important uh, determinant of religious success is whether or not religion makes you a good person and whether your own salvation um, is determined by whether or not you lead a good life. That's the way they viewed it. And for the most part, despite the fact that we have all these debates over the war on Christmas and there's lawsuits and there's, you know, fights on TV, you know, for most Americans, the question of, of the strength of their faith is not actually determined by Bill O'Reilly or the ACLU. <laughs> it's determined by whether they treat their neighbors well and whether their prayers are heartfelt and whether they uh, lead a good life um, and follow the dictates of their faith. Well, that's a great last word. Thank you. This was fun. Did you have fun? Thank you, yeah. It's so hard talking. I just can't, you know. What, what? It's so hard to know what to, like, no, it's which of great. these things is... Yeah, but it was, well, you can't, on. you know, you can't... Um, you can't get them all in, so you have to see what comes up in the conversation, what presents right. itself, what rises to the surface, and that's the right thing. But I have more experience at trusting that, man. <laughs> so it was great. Yeah, Thank you so much for doing a, this. It's a terrific book. Thank you. Uh, so um, I don't know who – have you been talking to Colleen? Okay, she's nodding her head. So she'll probably be in touch with you again. She may have some more questions, but, um, and we'll let you know exactly about what, what's happening. Okay. Okay. Great. You know, we're going to have a thing on the site which you can use if you want. Um, that um, hopefully by oh, not hopefully by the time the book launch it yeah. must be up. It's a, an archive of the letters and documents of the founders oh. that relate to their their personal spiritual views and, and also their um, you know religious freedom, including the whole Jefferson Bible. Oh, that's great. Well, We're going to have a thing where you can click on the little scissors icon and see what was cut. Okay. Oh, that's great. That's fantastic. We'll, we'll, um, I'm sure we'll take, take that seriously. Okay, Steve. Okay, thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.